speak to you this morning on Trinity Sunday in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Trinity Sunday, sometimes called Curate's Sunday, because that's the Sunday the curate always preaches. Father Michael told me this is the first Trinity Sunday since he's been here that he wasn't scheduled to preach and I wasn't going to do that to him three years in a row. Well, imagine that someone gives you a gift and you open the bag or unwrap the present and it's, there's this marvelous, intricate machine in some kind of plexiglass box and you can see all the gears and levers and buttons and it's just whirling around in there. What would be the first question that comes to mind? Wow, I wonder how long it took the factory to make that. Look at the polish on those gears. I wonder what kind of finishing wheels they used at the factory to get the polish on those gears. I don't think so. You would ask, what is it? What does it do? What's it for? Why did you give this to me? There are different kinds of questions, you see, and so there are different kinds of answers. There are how did it happen kind of questions, and what is it for kinds of questions, for example, and other kinds of questions too. And it's terribly confusing if we mix up the answers and the questions. The Old Testament lesson this morning is one of the most famous of all scriptural passages, one of the most beautiful expressions of Hebrew literature. And like most Christians in the Western world in the last 150 years or so, I bet many of us had these kind of first questions. How long did it take? How did God do it? Did God use some kind of evolution or not? And I think that's unfortunate. It's a modern way of looking at this ancient poem. And I've become more and more convinced over the last about 20 years or so that those are the wrong kinds of questions to ask of this passage. Now, they aren't at all wrong questions to ask in general. Don't misunderstand. They aren't wrong questions to ask and to think about and to ponder. But they're wrong questions to ask of this particular passage. I've become convinced this particular passage, Genesis 1, is not written to tell us how God did it or how long it took God, Genesis 1 tells us that what we need to know about stars and moons and planets and bugs and squirrels and people is not how long did it take God to make them, but what's it all for? What is this world for? And that's not to avoid the question of how God did it, but to learn what God intended us to learn from this particular passage. And a lot of time has been spent in discussing how the doctrine of creation and the theory of evolution might relate to each other. Some Christians have argued strongly that they cannot exist together. Some have argued strongly that they can work together in various ways. And those discussions are important ones to have. But that's not what Genesis 1 is about. And I'm borrowing this line of thought from Timothy Keller. I quote him about every other sermon that I give you because he's been a dramatic influence on my life. He died just a few weeks ago. But he says, in terms of biblical theology, the opposite of creation is not evolution. The opposite of creation is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The opposite of creation is not evolution. The opposite of creation is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the message of this passage, Genesis 1, is much, much more crucial to understand than it is useful to figure out how long it took God to create the world because this is the start of the gospel. The gospel begins unfolding out of Genesis 1. And if we miss the gospel here, we'll miss an awful, awful lot. Now the first clue that we need to be paying attention to the kind of story that we're reading here 
is that we have two stories right next to each other about the same thing. You know, as we sang our hymns this morning, you may have noticed there was a lot of repetition. We ended up saying the same thing over and over again. That's one of the marks of poetry and songwriting. If you take an English class and you get to the part where you have to write essays and you have to write an essay about something and you just keep writing the same thing over and over and over again, you get an F. But then you get to the poetry part of the class and you have to write a poem and you say the same thing over and over again, you get an A. Because there are different kinds of writing. And in Genesis 1, you have poetry. A lot of repetition, as Janet read it for us this morning. Evening and morning was the first day. Evening and morning the second day. Evening and morning the third day. And every time God says it's good. And there's an interplay between the numbers of the days that parallel each other. There's over 50 examples of repetition in Genesis 1 because it's a piece of poetry. It's a song. And now the standard secular academic line is that the stories of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 contradict each other, but they don't contradict each other. There are different types of writing answering different types of questions. And we see this actually all over the Old Testament. There are plenty of similar situations where we have a story being told and then a poem about the story. And oftentimes there are tensions between the poem and the story. For example, in Exodus 14, we have Moses leading the people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 15, the very next chapter, we have a song about it, Miriam's song. And indeed, there are tensions between the two accounts. For example, in Exodus 14, the soldiers ride into the dry land and the waters of the sea fall upon them. When Miriam sings about the event in the very next chapter, she says the horse and rider were cast into the sea. So some would say, Exodus 14 says the sea was cast on top of the soldiers. Exodus 15 says the soldiers were cast into the sea. These contradict each other. No, they're different types of writing. You don't demand factual accuracy in poetry. You're allowed some poetic license. It's a different kind of writing. In Judges chapter 4, another passage, we have an account of Israel's victory over the invading army of Sisera. And then in the next chapter, you have a song about it, Deborah's song. And in Deborah's song, she sings that the stars even came down to fight against Sisera. And there is no account of stars fighting in the previous chapter. It's a contradiction. Well, no. It's a different type of writing. Deborah is singing a song. She's not giving testimony in court. And if she wants to sing a song about how even the stars came down to fight against our enemy, it's fine. There are different kinds of writing. This is the example that I use in the classroom when I illustrate this point. Robert Burns' poem, Oh, my love is, I'm not going to do it with the Scottish accent. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love is like a melody that's sweetly played in tune. So fair art thou, my bonny lass, so deep in love am I. And I will love thee still, my dear, till all the seas gang dry. Till all the seas gang dry, my dear, and the rocks melt with the sun. I will love thee still, my dear, while the sands of life shall run. And there might be two types of people who read this poem. And the first person says, my love is like a red, red rose. She doesn't have thorns. She doesn't have petals. She's not a plant. Does she have roots that go into the soil? What a foolish poem this is. And the other person might say, well, of course his love is like a red, red rose. They're both carbon-based life forms. <laughs> they have cellular structure. Of course. And both people are missing the entire point. The entire point is he loves his girlfriend. 
Don't get hung up on the rose. And the same we see here in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 2, for example, God creates things in what seems to us, I had that in italics in my notes when I typed it, it seems to us to be a natural, logical order. First, God makes dirt, then he makes air, then he makes ways for plants to get water, then he makes plants, and then he makes people and animals to eat the plants. And in Genesis 1, God's portrayed creating things in a way that seems to us, it's in italics in my notes, to be illogical and unnatural. Is this a contradiction? No, the point of Genesis 2 is that God creates the natural order, and the point of Genesis 1 is that God's not restricted by the natural order. The point of Genesis 1 is God can create the world any way he wants to. It's his world, and he can do it any way he wants. So you have one of two things. Either you have what the secular academic world claims, that you have some ancient editor who was the biggest buffoon in publishing history who found these two contradictory stories and just put them together, or else you have what I believe, that you have Moses who finds a poetry, a, a poem about God's power over creation and then a story about how that creation goes together, two different types of writing. Well, let's look at this psalm, this song. Why does God create the world? We have several clues. First, God creates through speaking. Over and over again, in fact, eight times we're told, God said and there was. We aren't told God said and then he made, which is interesting. We aren't told God said and then he created. We're told God said and there was. God's word itself has power. It accomplishes something. You say, if I, you know, if I say, let there be light, I have to go flip on a switch. Or I have to light a match or turn on the flashlight. But God says, let there be light, and there it is. The spoken word of God has power. And then we have another clue. The spirit of God is hovering on the face of the water. Hovering. It's an active verb. It's only used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to a mother bird with arms stretched over her chicks. The spirit, we're told, is not an impersonal force field of some type, but an active force in the world. And another clue. God says, let us make humanity in our own image. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Let us make humanity in our own image. Well, who is this us? It's not angels. We aren't made in the image of angels. And we get the final clue somewhere else. There's another book of the Bible that opens with the words, in the beginning. That's right, it's John's Gospel. And there we find out two things, that nothing was created without the presence of Jesus. Without him, nothing was made. And that in fact, nothing was made without the action of Jesus because that word of God is Jesus himself, God the Son. St. Augustine pictured creation as God the Father watching God the Son as, as a father watching a son being creative and creating something maybe out of Legos or Tinker Toys or something and creating something, delighting in the sun, creating the world. And we find that our starting point is that the Trinity is involved in creation. And that's what we must keep in mind as we unravel what this passage is teaching us about creation. See, you, you have polytheists in the ancient world and even today who picture creation as all these gods get into a fight and a war and then out of this war somehow comes the created order and then you have non-Christian monotheists who picture God as one person in some kind of celestial solitary confinement to then 
gets an idea to create other things to interact with. But Christians understand God to be like a community, a community of persons, one God in three persons. And note, that isn't a contradiction either. If we said one God and three gods, that would be a contradiction. If we said one person and three persons, that would be a contradiction, but we don't. We say one God in three persons. This is not a contradiction. Occasionally in discussing the Trinity, some, some people will say um, God's logic is different from our logic. Our God's math is different from our math. And I understand what they mean, but really no. God's logic and our logic work the same way. Math is math. Math is math. There's no contradiction in the doctrine of the Trinity. You can read the Athanasian Creed. It's in the Book of Common Prayer. If I'd thought about it ahead of time, I would have had to say it today, but I didn't forget in time, remember in time to have the slides adjusted. The Athanasian Creed is on page 769 in the Book of Common Prayer. Go through there and see if you find a logical contradiction. You won't. There's not one. The finest minds in the Western world spent 400 years putting together the doctrine of the Trinity because they're trying to solve the problem of the one and the many, the basic problem of philosophy. It's not a problem of logic. Christians say that God is like a community. We don't say God is a community because then we might get misled, but we say it's like a community. Instead of a bunch of gods that may or may not fall in love with individual humans like in Greek mythology, or a God sitting all alone who somehow may have come to love something somehow, someday. Christians say that God is love because God is like a community of loving persons, a circle of love, a community of love. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit say, let us make humanity in our image. Look, the Trinity may be a bit puzzling to you, and I wouldn't be surprised but without it, you have an incredibly challenging philosophical problem. Because without the Trinity, without these, this internal, eternal circle of loving persons, we cannot say that love is ultimately real. We have to figure out where love comes from. We have to ask what love is. We have to ask if it's real. Is love real? Or is it just an evolutionary convenience to explain where babies come from? Is it just the byproduct of hormonal interactions? Good chemistry, we say, right? Is that all it is? Chemistry? Hormones interacting with each other? Is that what love is? Is it an economic transaction? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me, no more. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. What's love got to do? Got to do with it. Well, these are real questions. These are serious questions. And the world wants answers. But the Christian answer is this. The doctrine of the Trinity is true. And that means there was always love. It didn't just pop up someday, somehow. It's always been there. And love is real. Love is the realest thing there is. It's always existed. And it always will exist forever. And that's the starting point of the Christian message. There was an eternal circle of love, persons kind of in a community, loving each other, delighting in each other, enjoying each other. And this community decided, God decided, let's make this circle bigger. Let's create beings that will join the circle. And in a way, 
all creation is part of that circle with human beings being a very important part of the circle. Human beings created in the image of God to reflect something about God into the world. The idea seems to be that as human beings spread across the world, there'd be little reflections of God all over the earth. What does God do when he creates? He speaks, and then he says, this is good. Who's he speaking to? Why is he speaking? You speak because you want a relationship. God wants a relationship with all his created things, and he tells them they are good. What does that mean when he says they're good, that they function well? No, it means he delights in them. He takes pleasure in them. He enjoys them. He loves them. Remember the other book in the Bible that starts with, In the Beginning, the Gospel of John. John tells us the most remarkable thing, that God the Son, the one who created the universe, entered the universe. The creator became a part of the universe. The one who created human flesh took on human flesh, that he lived and died as one of us, that he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died, that he died on a cross. And in the crucifixion, the exact opposite of creation happens. God speaks, Jesus speaks, and nothing is created. Jesus speaks, and nothing happens. The one who had lived a life in an eternal circle of love is abandoned. The Spirit of God does not hover protectively over him. And Jesus speaks and says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer from that community of love. The one who created the universe is destroyed. Our maker had to be broken so that we could be repaired. Our maker had to be unmade so that we could be remade. And if you believe that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died and that he took your place, then God can look at you and see Jesus. And hear God say, you are good. I love you. And until the Spirit of God hovers over you and reveals that truth to you, that God loves you, you'll be dark and formless and void and empty. And you'll be empty because you will know what you were designed to do, what you were created to do. You were created to join the circle. And the cross makes the circle possible. But it gets even better. Keep reading the Gospel of John. You'll learn of the resurrection, that our restorer was restored, that our repairer was repaired. And just keep reading all the rest of what John wrote all the way to the end of Revelation and you'll learn that all of God's creation will be restored. The community will be rebuilt. The circle will be complete. The kingdom of heaven brought down to earth and once more God will look at his creation and say, it is good. It's the greatest story ever. And you're invited to join it. You're gonna be invited to join the circle throughout the rest of the service Listen to the invitation and the rest of the service. Come on, join the circle. In Jesus' name, amen.